Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Wednesday the 3rd of the 3rd. We're finally out of February. Michael, how have you been? I've been fine, Gary. Very happy to be out of February into the spring, which hopefully will be sprung soon. And I hope the listeners have been well as well, particularly the listener who put us a comment under the previous podcast, which was titled with a quote from Immanuel Kant, that... Uh, what was it? Can't wait to hear it. <laughs> Michael, you wanted to go into Fergus Finley, our good friend, a man with a, a great love of charity, Michael. Particularly charities that pay him six-figure salaries. I've never wanted to go into Fergus Finlay, but... Um, not even after, like, a couple of whiskeys? No, gee, no. There is not in the world whiskey enough, Gary. Ah, you know, a couple of whiskeys, a suggestive look. Anything could happen. I know myself well, Gary. A couple of whiskeys, I would be feeling probably slightly drunk and slightly unwell. If there was a very large, substantial amount of money involved and a promise that there would be no recording devices and strict privacy afterwards, then I might consider it. Finley was paid a gross salary of €114,651. No, Gary, that's wrong, because the HSC figure... Uh, for a job at the time was that the upper limit was €110,000. So that can't be right. I mean, Michael, I can understand where you're coming from, but I've got to inform you regretfully that there was later uh, what they would term an internal audit, which found that actually he and some senior management at Bernardo's at the time were paid salaries in excess of the health sector pay rates. No, well, Gary... All I can say, I am shocked, shocked, I to say, to discover there's gambling going on in this establishment. They also, the audit, interestingly enough, Michael, said information provided to the charity's board in relation to Finley's pay and mm -hmm. donations that may have been made to him uh, were uh, unclear. Well, I can tell you, Gary, what we know for certainty is that any doubts or any issues were absolutely cleared up. There was nothing problematic. Uh, if there was a very, very small overpayment, which was then discovered and then corrected, it was all done in good faith because uh, Fergus Finlay is a HSE board member. And you don't become a member, a board member of the HSE unless you are a person of stellar character and quality as Fergus is universally recognised to be. I mean, I will say this. Fergus is definitely a man who, you know, uh, he's got a, a good, solid you know, view of things. And sometimes he can find very innovative solutions, Michael. Like when he um, said that when he was asked about his salary being higher than those, those pay levels, and he said, well, he contributed to his salary with money that he earned through public speaking and things like that. Um, although the audit, Michael, I do have to say, was slightly critical that those contributions were put to the board and the media as CEO donations. Oh, right. Yeah. Which that actually, now, now I think about it, is slightly odd, isn't it? Not that I wouldn't, not that I would, I know nothing about accounting. I mean, I assume this is a perfectly legitimate. To me, that sounds very much like auditors having to in think of something to say because auditors as we know are paid and paid far too much and they have to say something gary so they desperately scrabble around and always oh, say that even though they know it's actually a perfectly normal and acceptable practice but you know you need to have something to justify your fees unlike Fing fergus who never had to justify his fees for doing anything because his services and his quality and his, product his productivity is so obvious and clear to everybody who has followed his career. Absolutely. And I mean, even Bernardo's, when they were asked, said that you know, they were talking about a particular fee of, ah, was some trivial amount, Michael, and uh, how it had been classed as CEO donation. And Bernardo's very, you know, were very upfront and said that, I believe the exact phrase was, it should be noted that the only reference to this fee being called a donation was for ease of administration on the CEO's private payslip. Well, there you go. I don't even know why we're talking about it. Uh, no, no, nor do I, nor do I, Gary. Uh, it, it's interesting, actually, just talking about, you know, the many things, great things that Fergus has done before we get into the particular interesting and incisive and maybe, you know, and wise things he has he commented he made about protests in Dublin recently was to remember that it was Fergus Finlay that in many ways gave us President Mary Robinson. No, I, well, I mean, the other one has, has clearly gone mad with guilt or something. 
Um, so, it's harder to explain what's happened with Mary Robinson other than a series of very lovely lunches that she didn't want to interrupt. Well, you could say that I couldn't possibly comment and not, as you know, I, I distanced myself. I think Mary made a small mistake, which has been blown massively out of proportion. And I'm actually only half joking about that, but it was Fergus. Fergus was large, was a large figure, loomed large in the election campaign. Uh, in 1990, that uh, that had succeeded in electing Mary Robinson, I think that the man in the audience in, in RTE probably had something to do with it as well. But there you go. Anyway, Fergus has been making comments about uh, on News Talk. It was it was an interview on News Talk. Fergus's uh, was on having a chat, and I'm relying now here on the reports from the Irish media. It was back in a couple of days ago that he said he would have liked a census done on the anti-lockdown protesters to see how many attendees were on PUP. Um, and why would he have liked to know that, Michael? You see, that's, I'm pausing there because I think, why would that be of importance? Fergus is a man of the left, a man of the progressive left. He's a man who has always been an advocate for civil rights and civil liberties. Fergus is a man that uh, the French would you would have called uh, a soixantiton, the Italians would call a settantino, a man of 68, Gary. You know, one of those out there in the boulevards, chanting away, bringing down the corrupt bourgeoisie. That's where Fergus is out there. He's a, he's a man of impeccable civil liberties. And yet, he'd like a census done on the anti-lockdown protesters to see how many were on PUP. I mean, why would you want to know that? What would be the purpose of knowing that? Other than, I, I don't know, sociological curiosity? He commented, and I'm quoting here, you can see almost, you can almost see the air of triumph among some of them because they've managed to get people into terrible trouble. They've managed to hurt people. They've managed to ensure that people got arrested. He then added, he'd love to have a census done of that crowd yesterday to find out how many of the protesters, including the violent ones, are drawing a weekly PUP or how many have us drawing a full salary based on a government subsidy. Now, to be fair to Gavin Riley, Gavin Riley asked him the very simple, what's the relevance of that? Uh, I'm, asked, I, I, I'm attracted to this story, other than the fact that it's always, always pleasant to have an opportunity to talk about Fergus Finlay, and we don't do it enough, Gary. Is this is a little window into the world of Ireland today. There was a protest in Dublin. Some people have called it a protest. Some people a violent protest. Some people, I suppose, having a little joke, have called it a mostly, a mostly peaceful protest. Some have called it a disgraceful riot. Everybody has is projecting, well, everybody in the media that I've seen is wildly projecting motives and reasons and rationales onto these people. Not only that, they're actually, they've managed to get inside the voting booths and they know who these people are voting for. They know where they, where they fit on the political quadrants. They know what political philosophies or ideologies that these people adhere to. I am wildly impressed. Gary, you've, I've, you remember, you've heard me quote before the famous quote of Queen Elizabeth I in England when she was being asked that there should be more done to those Catholics who were paying a fine for not attending services on Sunday. And at the time, the only thing, they, they just said they, they didn't have to go. And people said, we know why they're not going. We know perfectly well uh, it's because they're Catholics, they're secret Catholics, and we should punish them, we should hang them or do something nasty to them. And the Queen said, we don't know that. All we know is what we see. And she famously, I do not have a window to see into men's hearts. However, Fagan Ferguson, it seems to me, a lot of the commentary at in Ireland have windows, Gary, to see into the hearts. Am I right in saying that the police, the commissioner of police who had previously said that there were both elements of the far right and the far left to the protest has now moved away from that comment? He said that when he said far left, he was referring to Republican groups, violent Republican groups. But then on the far right side of thing, Michael, the Irish Times was reporting that they had found the people responsible for the violence. And I believe the Garda quote was that they were basically just thugs looking for a fight, not politically motivated at all. 
Also, they seem to have come from the south side, Michael, where I think we can all agree fascism would never come from. Monkstown Farm. I don't know where is. Do you know where Monkstown Farm is? It's on the south side. I that's. I would. That's enough it, for me, Michael. I, I'm gonna. I'm guess, guessing. And it would, may not actually be. That it must be somewhere near Monkstown. The only thing I knew about Monkstown is there used to be a really good Chinese there. Yeah. So it seems to have gone from um, organized clearly by people of you know, far right, far left political leanings to. Well, there was a protest, and we don't like some of the people who set it up. And also, some people turn up for violence, but they don't seem to be attached to the protest. And some groups gave out flyers, seems to be now the long and the short of it, that people found things like National Party flyers, or flyers talking about 5G or fluoride, um, which is very different than, you know, a march on the capital. Yeah, I just want to read the end of this piece here because I, I want you can tell me what sense this makes to you because I'm trying to parse it here, and I'm not really getting the point. I was really making that this was a protest against government policy. This was a protest against ending lockdown and let's get back to normal, which I presume means is transient in part into a demand to end the PUP and to end the subsidy of wages because we can get back to normal, we don't need it anymore. There were people hell-bent in that march yesterday. And thank God for social media that we all got to see it. We can't forget that these are exactly the same people who push Islamophobic theory, who push race theory, who push sexist theory, all over the place. That's painting with a broad brush, isn't it? He may believe this. He may well believe this. I don't know. He may well believe this. But she said, this is, this is deeply. Is this not one of the nastiest, most dishonest pieces of, of opinion that you've heard for a long time, Gary? At least it's, that's how it struck me. I have first art, the, the reason I quoted Elizabeth is because I don't think that on the face of it, the people who are making all that commentary are in a position to know what the hell were the reasons for the people who were who were at that protest. They said they were at the protest because they were fed they were fed up with the lockdown. Now, I think at the very least, the first thing we should do is to try and understand that and accept that there may have been people at that who were sick and tired of their. I saw one man who was carrying a. Uh, a, a pro, uh, he, who said, "I will wear the mask. I will. I will social distance, but I will. But I. I, I end the lockdowns." And he was wearing a mask, and he's, which everybody was saying, "Oh, none of them are wearing masks." It's like there is a desire in the, which has grown in the last, only in the last couple of weeks, that anybody who is criticizing the direction of policy regarding the management of the pandemic is now going to be identified with a political worldview and the political worldview which is regarded as being the most despicable but also gary one which we culturally associate with being rather stupid the far left is not associated except for people like myself and maybe yourself as being the home of the very stupid because if for nothing else somewhere between a quarter and three quarters of the people who are living in our universities are somewhere between the left and the far left so obviously academics intellectuals tend to be of the left being of the right of the far right is they're dumb crackers from appalachia who they're in the clan or whatever that you know the usual cliches and state we have seen a drift which we have talked about in recent times where the Zero COVID agenda has become, it's, it's being managed better, it's being communicated better, it's being more successful, it seems, at a, at a governmental level. And at the same time, even if you criticise zero COVID, you're being now lumped in with a criticism of the lockdown more generally. And if you're a lockdown sceptic or you're sceptical about elements of the lockdown, or the plan or the rollout of the lockdown, they are now being lumped in, or you're all just a bunch of right-wingers. And you're, you're, it's not just that, Gary. What Philly is saying is the same people who are anti-lockdown are Islamophobes, xenophobes, misogynists, sexists. It's, it is not, 
you wouldn't call this a nuanced piece of analysis but it's also just it's this is shut the hell up get back in your box or else everybody will find out what a bastard and nasty right wing you are because this is what we're going to tell everybody that you are and we don't have to take you seriously because we know you're a nazi you're if you're saying these things we know you're a nazi because you're a nazi we don't have to take you seriously fenton o'toole as you know one of ireland's premier public intellectual um the anti-lockdown sentiment is being given undeserved credibility most anti-lockdown sentiment gary quote is driven by ignorance conspiracy theories or the politics of the far right most anti-lockdown sentiment is being driven by ignorance conspiracy theories or politics of the far right it's not being driven by the fact that my coffee shop has gone out of business or my restaurant is gone or my clothes shop or my toy shop is closed and I can't do business or that I can't visit my parent, my elderly parents or I can't see my family or I can't do any of the things I would like to do and I can't travel and I and I don't see that the government is doing anything to actually seriously impact on this except change their minds and flip-flop and fuck up. That's not what's driving anti-lockdown sentiment, Gary. No. It's ignorance, conspiracy theories of the politics of the far right. And we know that's true because Fintan O'Toole said it. And it couldn't be, Michael, just to you know, throw out a potential here. It couldn't be because 25% of the country is unemployed. We'd have some of the longest lockdowns in Europe. They've been some of the strictest. The government seems to have absolutely no control over what's happening. The vaccine program has repeatedly mixed uh, its targets. The government in a leaked memo is now saying that rapid antigen testing will be absolutely key to opening the economy, which is great because they were told that eight months ago by the business groups and eventually it seems to have gotten true. Uh, it's been a catalogue of failures throughout the entirety of this thing by the government. I was talking to a man today, let me with his two pints. I was talking to one of those men. He has a successful shop selling menswear, right? And because of the, the particular restrictions applying to this lockdown, he can't sell his wares click and collect. He had spent a lot of time and money previously setting up his website and his online, and he, he made up videos of, people modeling stuff and he went through a catalog of a massive amount of time of the stock in the shop so that people could click and look at stuff and he could they could do their click and click now and I, I, I don't i'm not saying this sarcastically here or silly there may be a good reason why click and collect to small retail outlets was considered to be problematic the problem is i have never heard that reason this man whose livelihood has been seriously put at risk because previously he was getting by he wasn't doing brilliantly but he using the click and collect having did a lot of work on it did it well did it right he had one person at a time coming to the coming to click and collect the gear it was handed out disinfect the door disinfect everything blah 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 everything was done right he was getting by on the, now he can't do that he can only deliver which massively affects his capacity to do business and he doesn't know why and nobody has told him why and i think the least you can do to someone who you're doing that to is tell them why it's actually an interesting point that relates to um how the government has communicated things on COVID 19. i don't want to go terribly into this but it's just an observation the co the government's um the government's communications on this and the things they've been telling people to do have not been based on explaining to people, you know, this is how COVID spreads. This is how these things happen. These are the things you need to watch out for. It has instead been giving effectively entirely arbitrary rules. Like, do you remember the 15 minutes within, was it six foot of someone? Yeah. That that would, you know, then you were at risk. And I remember at the time saying there's no, there's no basis for anything there not neither the distance i don't think it may probably wasn't six foot actually but whatever distance they gave or the 15 minutes there were simply arbitrary numbers that they had picked it was two meters and then it, it was two meters here it was one meter in another place it was a meter and a half in other places yeah. so they just picked these arbitrary numbers and told people to adhere to this but because they did that they never gave people a chance to actually go well this is actually what i need to look out for and i should use my own best judgment it was just comply with these rules that actually don't have anything behind them 
other than some vague assumptions we have about how this will work, that we actually can't really stand over. No. And all of their communication has just been like that. It's just been, do this, you don't need to know why, just do it. Which would be less worrying if they hadn't been so consistently wrong about it. It just seems to me that we've reached a point where the attitude, which is being filtered through the media and through commentators in the media or whatever, he's no longer, I don't think, uh, active, but he was until recently working for the Irish Times, and he still calls himself a journalist on, on social media. Michael Regan, Michael Regan, right, tweeted, I never thought I would be saying this, but I am. Ban all anti-lockdown marches. Now, we have seen comments tonight, Gary, in relation to other issues from prominent persons in academia and in journalism talking about the imminence of the danger coming from the far right in Ireland and the threat to democracy and how close we are to Dachau, right? And this is because of the threat about the far right. And the threat to democracy is a real, present, live threat. And I, you know, I've come to the conclusion that, that there is, in fact, a real active threat to democracy in Ireland right now. But one can only, if one's being reasonable, assess that the threat to democracy is not coming from the far right, which is a group of people that could fit in the, in the, in the back room in O'Donoghue's, but it's coming from the people in power. The single biggest political issue in this country today is obviously the response to the pandemic. And the response of a journalist from the Irish Times is, we should ban all marches protesting against the government's policy on the pandemic. To me, it does not require wisdom to be aware of the fact that there are far, far more people in this country who are genuinely fed up and pissed off than turned out to get involved in the mostly peaceful riot in Dublin. And there are a lot of people who have serious questions about the way the pandemic is being managed. By God, any reasonable person who's been paying attention should have. I am not, as it happens, if it matters, a lockdown sceptic, whatever that means. There are elements of the lockdown that I think don't make sense. But I'm perfectly willing that if some that to concede that those elements that don't make sense to me it's possible that somebody could come around and say, ah, that's because of this reason. I go, oh, okay. I think that we are where we are because, you know the old joke? You stop in Kerry and you say, uh, could you tell me the way to Tralee? And the guy goes, ah, geez, if I was going to Tralee, I wouldn't go this way. I wouldn't start from here. Very much, if I was trying to get out of the COVID pandemic, I wouldn't start from here. I think that if we had started from a very different place back in March, and by the way, that isn't a question of hindsight is twenty twenty. I think there were people, reasonable people, saying, making observations about mistakes that were later made that could easily have been avoided, that we could have been in a better place. But leaving that aside, we are where we are. And probably where we are is going to... But even now, the, the management of the communication, as you said, the communication system, it's just relentlessly bad. And it's you're starting to... I don't know, a friend, I don't know if you saw, a mutual friend of ours tweet, put, there, referred to, there was now a bit of scuttlebutt going around there a couple of days ago that the lockdown was going to go into June, if you saw, I don't know if you saw that. And the comment, he, he commented tongue-in-cheek, I, I imagine, he said, oh, looks like the, it looks like the tinfoil hat boys were right. It is going to go on forever and ever. We're not being, there's nobody's communicating the exit plan, Gary. I said this the last time. We need to be talking about the exit plan so that people, if people have and are now objecting to saying, oh, well, once the vaccine is done, then we just, we get out. And if that's not going to be what's happening, well, that needs to be said now. And it has to be explained why it's not going to happen and how it is going to happen so that people's expectations are modulated and they actually understand it and if you tell people you give people good reasons rather than just say a year into this when you have squandered completely the reservoirs of faith that people have to take things at your word you can't just just take my word for it no that's not that's not going to wash and certainly it's not going to wash when the pontiffs of opinion like Fergus Finlay and O'Toole 
look down on the unwashed and say, do this and behave well. Also, there's a bizarre inversion. The people who are being hurt here, many, many, we're talking about ordinary working people, Gary. Surely the left should care about them. Surely the left should be deeply engaged rather than saying the people who are getting 250 or 350 quid a week on PUPs, we want to take, we want to make a list of them. Why would you? I get very nervous, Gary, when people want to make lists. When people start talking about, let's make a list, that makes me worry. This is not something that ends well. I don't know if you're a fan. Are you a fan of the Gilbert and Sullivan at all? I've been known to. Well, in the uh, it's in their very fine piece, the Mikado, the Lord High Executioner, one of his famous lines is, "I have a little list." And when people start making lists, I always imagine this: "I have a little list." Michael, I'm not sure if you if you want to convince people that having a little list is terrible. The Mikado is is really where you're going to go with it because it's generally delightful. It is generally delightful, but there is a lot of head chopping. It's a constant theme having a head chopped off there, which is maybe less delightful. Anyway, this is, we are where we are, and this, these are the people, the guardians of, Jesus, I mean, <laughs> the comedy, you know, the comedy of it all, Gary, is, you know, the, you know, the central point of the Fintan O'Toole article is, the lack of oversight of the doll, the lack of scrutiny of the, in the doll and the Oireachtas. There is a group which has historically, traditionally been regarded as being, shall we say, the watchdogs of the people in this regard, from the times of the French Revolution, you're the first, second and third estate. And then we had a group called the fourth estate. And their job was to scrutinize and interrogate our politicians. Their job was to be skeptics. Yes, Gary, skeptics, not cynics, skeptics. And those people were called the press, journalists. Now, I don't know if Finton knows any journalists, but if he does, maybe he should go and talk to them and see if they would book up their ideas and start scrutinizing this government a little bit more than they have been up to now. Because I think Finton is absolutely right. There is a dreadful lack of scrutiny in this country regarding what goes on in the Oireachtas. And if only there were people like Finton O'Toole involved in the press, Gary, maybe we would be a better nation. But that's just a dream. So, Michael, story that you uh, you may not have heard. Do you know that we missed our um, vaccination target two weeks ago? Well, I I think I must have worked it out always because I, I saw the number of people. I think both of us have, get the 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 roundup uh, from the minister, which tells us every week the number of people who have been vaccinated. And I just go on the basis that the target for vaccinations is easy to remember in that the, the target's supposed to be 100,000 a week, isn't it? So two weeks ago, it was 80,000. We actually undershot it. We went to, actually, it was, it was over 80,000. We got 78,000 or 78,500, that kind of region. Unfortunately, it wasn't reported anywhere that I saw that we actually uh, missed it. And I think actually part of the issue is that reporters are using the COVID hub data yes. that the government is putting up. And you, the listener's probably seen this. So every day it comes up and it says, you know, total doses now, first doses plus, second doses plus, whatever. And not just the, the public, Gary, just make the point that in, the, in the, the, the updates that the minister sends around to TDs and senators, in, in that little short little thing, it, it also says more details are available and he gives the link to the COVID hub. So other, it's not just the public that are getting that, are being directed there for their information. No, and, and and nearly all the media is using it. The only media I haven't I've seen who aren't using it would be me and Fergal Bowers, and we're not using it because we're using um, data from the HSE's IIS, which is its data service. And the interesting thing about the hub data, Michael, is it comes out every day, and it says, you know, this amount was administered on a particular day, but it it's not actually correct. It includes vaccinations on that day, but also vaccinations any over any previous amount of time that have been updated. So if, you know, two weeks ago they got the number wrong and they've found they actually did 500 more, that goes in as having been, you know, last Saturday. Whereas the IIS data, 
breaks it down across the last seven days and updates on a rolling basis. So you can always go, no, this is actually what we did on a particular day. So what I think the issue actually is, is that almost all the media are using that other data set. And on the other data set, the government hit the target. It's only when you look at the actual figures that you realize, actually, we just missed it. Now, since in the last two weeks, how have we done? So in the last week, so this would be the, um, this would be the, the week of the 22nd to the 28th. We haven't got the data for the 28th yet, the Sunday. That'll come, by the time this podcast goes out, you guys, the data will probably be out. And what I'll do is I'll include a link to the ISI in the bottom of this. So you guys, if you want to see up to date, detailed vaccine information or what we have, you'll be able to access it. And that way you will be way ahead of most of the country's media. So on the 22nd to the 28th, what we saw was a 14% increase over two weeks ago on numbers vaccinated. It now looks like we are actually going to get 80 to 85,000 vaccines done. So we'll be 20 to 15,000 shy of the vaccine total. As I said, the only data we don't have is for Sunday the 28th. Because the target, sorry, just for clarity, the target is, is 100,000. It's 100,000 for that week. So we don't have the information for Sunday the 28th. But if you look back at Sunday the 21st, we only did 1,900 vaccinations. On Saturday the 20th, we had done 8,700. On Saturday the 27th, we did 7,900. So it seems like we will, you know, we can't say for certain because these are very short trend lines. But you would expect likely something in the kind of 2000 region, unless something has changed. But we can't tell if anything has changed because the Department of Health and the HSE will not explain to anyone why any of these numbers are moving. But the interesting thing is we last week we were around, you know, 75 to 79,000 on the seven day distribution over the week. This week we've been at about 75 to 80,000 which implies that actually it's not going up at all. It's actually hit pretty much a ceiling, such as might happen, Michael, if there was, let's say, a supply constraint. But what I what I just find interesting here is no one is reporting that we're missing these targets that I've seen. I haven't seen a single article, apart from what I did do on the daily vaccine update that I do on Gripped, uh, if you're really interested in the stats, I haven't seen any mention of it, and I've seen members of the media saying that they don't think it's fair to do that yet because the program is still scaling up. No, 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 no. Sorry, can I just be clear about that, Gary? No. I mean, that was pretty much my take, that uh, no, let's not wait until two months down the line when we have to go, you know, this has been going wrong for a while, hasn't it? And Okay, right. Not to be always doing the same thing, but... We have been doing this now since the 31st of December. Actually, I think it was the 29th we started on. Well, I say the 31st because I have the stats in front of me from 31st. Actually, it's 20, 26th, most likely. Anyway, let's assume it was the 31st, Michael. The the, 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 the data is that I have available starts at the 31st of December. Right? And that is, that's my memory of it. Anyway, maybe I could be wrong on that. The United Kingdom starts, the data starts from the 13th of December, okay? So that means that they have a, whatever that, you know, a couple of weeks of uh, an advance on us. Now, the reason I say no, 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 is simply this. If, okay, anybody who wants to look, now the, the, the numbers may not be absolutely precise, and there are various reasons because it depends on where they get the reasons from. Uh, you can get good data on anything to do with COVID, on there's a, a website called worldindata.org and go Gary maybe if you want to throw in a link to that and if you want you can look and there's a very informative little map you can make for yourself by clicking Ireland and the United Kingdom and it shows the COVID-19 vaccines dosed administered per 100 people now in the first in the in the period between they say the 13th uh for the first couple of weeks to be fair the UK's output was not brilliant it was going up week on week, but it wasn't going mad, right? But from basically the beginning of January, the angle changes, and it changes quite dramatically, and has continued upwards 
on an angle that looks around 45 degrees. We, Gary, are looking at an angle which looks an awful lot more like 15 degrees. And we've been, we're not in the rollout stage anymore. We are, we are in the stage now that if we were, if we were looking at what happened in other countries that doing this quickly, like, and the most obvious ones here are obviously Israel and the United Kingdom, but we'll stick with the United Kingdom because what Israel did was were just incredible. But I think we can fairly look at the United Kingdom and say, if the UK can do it, then really we should be able to do it. If we look at the, the date, now I'm not going, well obviously there's no point in comparing us to where the United Kingdom is today. But if we draw back and allow for the lost time, right? We are talking about a few weeks. If we look, say, at, I think the date we I chose was around February, February 14th, which allows the, the differential in time, show the, the handicap advantage that the United Kingdom had had, right? At that stage, on vaccine doses administered per 100 people, the United Kingdom was on 23.33 doses per 100 people administered. On the last date that we have data uh, available for Ireland, which is the 26th of February, uh, updated up to then, Ireland was in 8.63. And I think 8.63 actually may be overstating it when it comes to individuals, because as they say here, the total number of vaccinations dose administered uh, this is counted as a single dose and may not equal the total number of people vaccinated depending on the specific dose regime people receive multiple doses in certain cases because if you look at the numbers that are provided both on the COP, on the hub and the HSE numbers I don't think that we're looking at a number of uh, what it is eight point six three percent of people having received at least one vaccine i don't think that it is that high but even if it is we're talking basically that we are now two months into this process and we are at one third of where the united kingdom was at a parallel point and the trajectory that we have is lower than we're, st we're still not hitting targets. The United Kingdom by this stage was not just hitting targets, Gary, it was breaking targets, it was going beyond targets. Do you have, people who are objecting, and to go back to the previous, one of the reasons, justifications that we're told is that you, that why we should be dismissive and hostile to these people who are anti, who are involved in lockdown protests or whatever, is that they don't understand how serious this is. This is a terrible pandemic. The country's at war. Do you have any sense, Gary, that the government is treating this as a war scenario? That we are rolling out the vaccination as if this country was at war? I'll give you an example of something as, a, as an answer to that, Michael. So Richard Chambers has been saying that the government has said they're actually not going to hit their target, that they expect to get, you know, 89,000, not 100,000. It would be surprising if they hit that figure, by the way, unless they're using the inflated uh, figures. And they said they won't make that due to two delivery issues with AstraZeneca. I don't think that's actually true, though. I think absolutely those deliveries may have been an issue. But we have a buffer stock of vaccines in the country that we are keeping for second doses. I don't think what we're doing with them actually makes any sense at all. Because if you, if you think of vaccine supply as effectively like a funnel, it's, it's narrowest at the start and then it, it widens as it goes forward. So as we move further into the year, more vaccines come online, more vaccines are available. So the buffer becomes less required because if you use the vaccines, you're getting more vaccines later and you just take them from the, the new vaccine supplies and percently it's actually a relatively small thing. All of those buffers should be getting used now because this is the, this is the choke point. This is when supply is the issue. So for all that they come out and say, well, you know, it's, it's a supply issue. There were delivery issues. You do sort of have, well, we have a vaccine reserve of tens upon thousands of vaccines the last time I checked, although it's very difficult to find daily data on it, or at least weekly data on it, and we're not using it. But even even when the vaccine program started, Michael, 
We were the second last country in Europe to roll out, to start the actual vaccination program. And we were that late because the HSE said they hadn't finished doing the consent training as if they were suddenly surprised that the vaccine had come forward. There has never been any great feeling of, of rush behind this. The HSE was advertising 10 days ago, advertising for people to come forward to act as vaccinators. The, the Brits were training volunteer vaccinators in November. We were advertising the HSE was advertising on social media 10 days ago and the closing date for, ad- for applications was yesterday. Country is, is obviously broken down into cohorts and cohort one, it was those in long-term care facilities, um, the elderly in, in care homes and staff, which is actually an important thing, which the government hasn't really mentioned that much. Cohort two was healthcare workers and cohort three was anyone over, I think 65 could have been 70. Uh, who was not in a long-term care facility. Cohort 3 is now what we're doing with the GPs, starting with the over-85s. But here's the thing, when you actually look at the figures for this, we have only, in the last two weeks, vaccinated 50,704 people in Cohort 3. On the other hand, when you look at how many healthcare workers have been vaccinated, there are more healthcare workers vaccinated in the country, to date, than there are... Cohort 1, Cohort 3, and non-coded, which is just people who are in a different cohort that isn't meant to have been vaccinated yet, put together. Substantially more. Sorry, Jay, this is nothing to do with us, but I just, I thought it was funny in a, in a, in a kind of a, not very nice way. I was talking to a friend of, uh, who is living at the moment in Uruguay. Um, they're kind of stuck in Uruguay. They'd rather be in another place, but because of where they are, they're, they're, they're stuck, they're in, they're in Montevideo. And they've only, they've just, just about to start their vaccine program. And she said, nobody was surprised when it was announced that the first people that were to be vaccinated in Uruguay will be the armed forces and the police. You know, every culture reflects its own sense of priority. And there's something, <laughs> I don't know if reassuring is the word, but for a South American country, South American government to come out and say, oh, by the way, guys, it's okay. The first people are going to get the vaccines. It'll be the army and the cops. Don't worry. There's something you think, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. That sounds, that sounds just about right. Here's, here's the reason why this is, this is important. Healthcare workers, there was an argument to vaccinate them in order to minimize disruption to um, healthcare services, and they were more likely to get COVID-19 than the general population. But age still remains the primary risk factor here. So we've vaccinated a ton of people who may have been likely to get COVID, although depending on those roles, they may not have been. But they weren't at terribly high risk of the most negative impacts of COVID, which are obviously hospitalisation and death. One of the things was we know that they also move around a lot, so and they were dealing with vulnerable people, so they were they, they represented not necessarily a threat to themselves, but because they were going into lots of care homes or lots of other facilities that they themselves may have been. It was better to have them vaccinated because that reduced the, considerably the the risk of the people they were dealing with. Maybe yeah, they they do say that, but the problem there is there's four hundred ninety thousand people. The CSO estimates in cohort. Three, we've so far vaccinated 50,000 of them. These are the people most likely to have the most negative impact from COVID-19. If we hadn't done, if we hadn't done healthcare workers at all, if we had put cohort three as cohort one and basically said, these are the people we'll start with, we would have, if we had done the same numbers, just shy of 300,000 of these people vaccinated. So instead of getting the majority of the people most at risk vaccinated we vaccinated healthcare workers gary i know i i i i i i know the point you're making uh i but what i'd say to you is i think that it is on the face of a, a debatable point my point would be i think in a sense that this is in a way an irrelevance well it isn't an irrelevance but it should be an irrelevance that at this stage two months into this program, two months into this process, we shouldn't have to be having that conversation about whether or not you vaccine, 
whether or not you should have vaccinated 300,000. We should be well beyond that. This shouldn't be an issue. But it is, and that's what's, that's the fucking Now, Stephen scandal. Donnelly was saying originally that by the end of this week, all over 85s would have received the first dose of vaccination. Now he's saying the vast majority of over 85s will received that, um, that vaccination. The thing here is that if there's any hope of the country reopening, it requires the most vulnerable to be vaccinated. That is just what is going to happen. Once those people are vaccinated, then the debate becomes very different regarding lockdowns and reopening. We've currently vaccinated just over 10% of cohort three. And cohort three is, I think it's, it, let's say it's 70. We would want to go down slightly below that as well. So at this rate of pace, you're talking 10% every two weeks. We're going to be doing this a while. I don't have a problem when with low numbers at, at the start. That was inevitable. My concern is that in comparison, it's not that, in a sense, if there are other countries that are as bad as we are, that's not the point. The point is that it's possible to do this much more quickly, and we know it is because there's our nearest neighbor has done it and by this point in their process they were accelerating week on week they were doing more and more and we are not we are not increasing our trajectory that's the really concerning thing it's not what we did three weeks ago that worries me it's the fact that we're still in and around where we were what we were doing three weeks ago and i don't see in the united states trump was being criticized because he talked about a rollout, and the rollout was going to be 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that's what you do. If you, we've talked, Gary, we've talked to this before, the cost is irrelevant. When you consider the weekly cost of what, of the effect that this is having on the economy, when you look at the cost to the exchequer of the supports that are being given in income supports and businesses, etc., the cost of what it would, to do this would be irrelevant. The fact is, we can only hope, Harry, hope that the real problem here is a problem of supply. So I'll give you just a f two figures, just to give you an idea of, of how this is. If you take the seven, the total vaccinations over the previous seven days from the 27th, which is the last day we have data for when we're doing this. So that would be the Saturday back to the Sunday, the 21st. We did 80,384 vaccines, okay? Yeah. If you take that same figure from the 20th to the 14th, so exact same period, just a week behind. And in fact, the 14th was before the GPs came on board, so it should be much lower. The actual figure is 79,486. There's less than a thousand vaccines in the difference there. That's not growth. No, that's just that's stasis yes and so when we talk about like we're doing 50 percent in two weeks then it starts becoming a question of okay what is the reason for this stasis is it supply is it capability is it delivery what is it is it the administration and the hse and the department will not release enough information on this for anyone to actually tell what's happening so i can't tell you if we should expect the numbers to go up, I can't tell you if we should expect them to go down. I don't think anyone can. It's entirely possible the department isn't entirely sure. But it doesn't build the sense that these people are in control of this, and it doesn't give me a great deal of faith that they can handle trying to vaccinate 490,000 people in a relatively speedy fashion. We've heard Stephen Donnelly throw around the, the number after a, a April, May of a million a month. Right now, that seems like beyond cuckoo land. However, if we are being restricted because of supply, then we can hope that as supply becomes more plentiful, then we can wrap it up. My concern would be that when the supply comes in, will we actually have structures in place and ready to go to boom this out in the kind of numbers that we're going to need to come anywhere near his trust? And by the way, Okay, so, well, why, you might ask reasonably, why wouldn't they say that the, the, the supply was the issue? And I would suggest, Gary, that there may be a political reason behind why 
because finally we have, I mean, not many voices, but say Mark McSherry again has put his head, put his head above the parapet and said, it's time to just behave uh, in the way that is best for the people of Ireland and forget about notions of solidarity. You know, the famous, the, 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 the great solidarity in the Europe, Europe and keeping it all together and trusting in, in procurement. And you know that we had pointed out that that was fraying a little bit. Well, I'm afraid another, another proud soldier has fallen in the battle against uh, solidarity. I'm looking at a photograph, Gary, of Sputnik 5 arriving on the tarmac of the International Airport in Kozice in Slovakia. Why? Because Slovakia has bought the Russian coronavirus vaccine. So we now have, what, Denmark, Austria, Poland, Slovakia, the Czech Republic, and Hungary have all gone outside the EU for doses. Malta. Germany. Cyprus. And uh, no, Denmark and Austria are going outside. They, I don't know if they've actually gone outside, but they've they've already. We'll talk about that in a minute. But my point is, Slovakia has purchased two million doses. And the reason I'm saying I'm looking at a photograph is because sometimes when you say this, people say eh, it's all very well to say they're buying from the Russians, but they could sign a contract. But sure, they mightn't get it until June or July or September, at which point we'll have loads of. I'm there's a photograph. Which, unless it's been put up by this, is of boxes of Sputnik vaccine coming off an aeroplane in Slovakia. Now, this is happening, and those vaccines will be ready to be given out to people in Slovakia as soon as the Slovakian drug agency has approved them for use. So, if Slovakia can do it, Gary, I think we could even say maybe, maybe we could do it too. Maybe we have the kind of heft and economic power that Slovakia has, that we could go out and buy our own fucking vaccines and vax. If the problem is supply, and if the problem is supply, the government has a duty not to say, we'll wait, we'll wait, we'll wait, but to go and solve the problem. That's why they're there. There is this wonderful sense from the government of just things happen. And, you know, what are we expected to do about them? But just did you hear that the Financial Times reported this? Did you hear the German finance minister's view of the EU vaccine program? I didn't. No, I missed that. He said, and this is a direct quote, it is a total shit show. That is the German finance minister. Now, reportedly, the Financial Times is, is, didn't, I mean, he didn't say it in an interview with the Financial Times, but the Financial Times, who generally pretty good at checking these things, say that that is a direct quote from the German finance minister about the EU vaccine program. Now, just on, on the slow vaccine, just for clarity for, and for honesty, they have received 200,000 doses, which in Ireland today, that will be two weeks worth of vaccinations. And they have another 800,000 coming then in March and then in April. So that's another eight weeks worth. That would be worth having, Gary. A million more doses in Ireland in the next, between this, uh, this month and next month would actually would be worth having it would be worth our while but it, uh, the germans are unhappy now did you see, did you see on the other hand the uh, i don't know if you saw the the comment of the the austrians i didn't know what do the austrians say the austrians and the danes we you referred to there the austrians and the danes have decided that they are uh, the austrian chancellor sebastian kurz has described the eu vaccination deployment as too slow and has announced that his country and Denmark are now working with Israel on protecting their citizens against the new coronavirus variants. So it's not even that they're worried about what's happening now, which they are, but they're thinking, you know what, if and when we have a problem, maybe that we're going to need booster shots or tweaks in the vac vaccines, if there should be new variants that are resistant, uh, we're not going to be, they're not even thinking about the EU. We'll deal with the Israelis. They seem to know what they're at. That's what. That's the level of faith that the Austrians and the Denmarks. And you wouldn't have thought. You don't think traditionally of the Austrians and the Denmarks, the, the Danes as being the Denmarkers, the Danes as being these wild, surly, anti-European types, do you? Uh, it's an odd combo, actually, Austria Denmark. I don't think that's come together since uh, 
the Austro-Prussian War after Schleswig, the invasion of Schleswig-Holstein, wasn't it? Which is uh, a while ago. A little bit of fun there for the listener. It's a while since they had to think about the unification of Germany for their interstate history in 1984. Oh, they've, they've come together since the, um, since the, the Austro-Hungarian issue. <laughs> Austria, the Austro-Hungarian issue. Yeah, okay, fine. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, there was the, there was the, there was the 40s. Yeah, there was. <laughs> Germany was being led by an Austrian, so. <laughs> the Austrians was that the Austrian uh, Austrian Denmark will no longer rely on the EU in the future, and will in the coming years produce doses of second generation generation vaccinations, together with Israel. And you've got to admire um, Austria's ability to convince people of things such as that uh, Hitler was German, and Beethoven was Austrian. Yeah, that was my favourite. There was a conductor friend of mine who, said, she was, who spoke fluent German, and and but she used to go up to Salzburg for a, a yoke that she used to conduct, and she said, the Austrians are fantastic. There's the world convinced that Hitler was German and Beethoven was Austrian. <laughs> and it is true, it is true. Although, actually, I don't know. How many people don't know that his, Hitler was actually Austrian? Strange though, I was I was on holiday, well, sort of on holidays many years ago, quite close to Hitler's birthplace. There was a remarkable lack of signage and things, you know, tourists to say Hitler was born over there or Hitler's home place up this, that kind of thing. There was very little of that. Didn't they turn uh, where he committed suicide into a parking lot? Uh, well, yeah, but well, I think the Which Russians actually seems like the wrong thing because you're like, oh, we don't want anyone to, you know, come here and venerate him or praise his name so we're going to turn it into a lovely car park i'm sure there is a motorist who has parked there and tanked hitler um well, i think it, the, the russians to be fair gary had actually pretty well turned it into a car park anyway um there wasn't a whole lot left it's it's a way to go the italians go a slightly different way mussolini is actually buried in rather a splendid chapel crypt in predapio where people go and say mass and on his, on his birthday and his death and something, you know, it's like it's. I've always thought I've always thought it's not coincidental that when mass is celebrated in his memory, it's always the Latin Tridentine mass. It's never the modern mass. I don't know what that says about the the Mussolini followers. They're just traditionalists. Uh, if anybody's ever around it, Predapio is it's worth a visit, and food is very good around that. It's Emilia Romagna, so you always the food is always excellent. So there's a you know, bit of tourist uh, advice for the listener. That went from vaccines to Mussolini in like record time. Mussolini would have been very pro-vaccine, I would say. He was very big into the future and science and that kind of stuff. So he would have been very much pro-vaccine. So there, which just goes to show, fascist, not anti-vaxxer. There you go. I'm not sure what the listener will do with that, but okay. So the German, so we're getting, getting back to the, was the German foreign ministry, is it? The, Ger- the finance minister. Finance said it was a shit show. <laughs> you see, the Germans are gone because the Germans know they can get now. The especially now the English are gone, they can get away with what the hell they like. I mean, they went away. Do you remember they went and bought fifteen million extra Pfizer backs? Wasn't it fifteen million they bought? And nobody, no, 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 Nick. no, no. We we don't talk about that. And when they were asked about it in the conference, somebody said, I don't know why you're all interested. In, you know, this was early days and nobody quite had dotted the I's or crossed the T's or, or the agreements. It, it was unclear. I mean, I don't know why you're all very interested in these minutiae. <laughs> yeah. Although, I don't know, did you see some of the stories that were going around about the amounts of AstraZeneca uh, that are on stockpile in France and in Germany? Yeah, it's almost like shitting on the vaccine for political reasons over an extended period of time drove down public support for vaccination in general, but particularly that vaccine. What was the what was the line that Macron said? It was effectively useless, wasn't that it? Basically or effectively useless, the AstraZeneca vaccine. And in Germany they they announced they weren't going to be giving it to over sixty fives. Uh, they've now announced that they will, in fact, be giving it to over 65 and up to 75. But oddly, people are going to get their vaccination, asking, is this the Pfizer one? And no, it's not. And they're going, no, we'll come back when it's the German one. Well, we know, well, I say we know, I'm told that we know, that on the basis of the Israeli and then the Scottish figures, that it's now clear that there's actually 
almost no difference in protect the levels of effective protection was protection from the two vaccines and indeed the AstraZeneca vaccine, which did have a smaller clinical trial cohort of elderly people than Pfizer and therefore people were saying that the data wasn't terribly clear on whether and how effective it would be with older people. But now it seems the, the, the real world data is what they call it, Gary, real world data says that it's actually very effective. So if they offer me the AstraZeneca, I will be taking it. So I think we will we will close up there today. We will be back on Friday. I particularly want to talk about Amnesty International and the Russian situation and prisoners of conscience and how incredibly easy it is to manipulate Amnesty International into making a fool of itself. Also, I think we'll be probably talking about the series of savage, uh, angry statements that the Irish uh, civil liberties groups have been making about the desire to close down anti-lockdown protests in their vigorous defence of civil liberties. Or did I just dream that? Hope has died long ago. Long, long ago. I can still remember when the music used to make me smile. Okay, we shall be back on the Friday, God willing. So wash your hands and stay indoors. All the best.